We are Centerpoint Church. This is a recent recording from our Sunday morning gathering. We hope you can join us at the Odeon Cinema in Guildford, Sundays at 10am. Enjoy the message. Okay, hello. Good morning. Good morning, morning. Um, just to encourage you to finish up those conversations and... Um, we're going to get started uh, just by introduction. Hello, my name's Chris, and uh, I'm the, the guy that leads the team that leads Centerpoint Church. And uh, it's really good uh, to gather together this morning. Um, uh, you know, as the guys have been saying, it's been great to worship together. And in some ways, all the words that have been coming through, I really feel, have been sort of lending myself to my talk. It's almost preached my talk for me. But I'm not going to let you off. I'm going to preach it anyway, because um, it's all good. Um, we've been going through a book in the Bible called 1 Corinthians, and we did the first part, uh, uh, sort of first eight chapters in sort of September to November. And today we're starting the second part, so chapter nine onwards. And um, if you're here for the first time, then you've picked a great week as we sort of start back into this. And each of the talks are kind of standalone, so don't worry if you haven't read, heard the rest of the series, although you can do through Church Suite. Hey. Uh, you can listen to all the downloads. And uh, this morning, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and 10, and a bit of 8, and I'll explain why in a moment. Um, and I've called my talk, Running the Race Well. And this comes from some key verses in chapter 9 that read like this. Do you not know that in the race all the runners run? but only one gets the prize. So run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. Great passage. So running the race well, running for the prize, it requires the right nutrition, it requires strict training, it requires purpose and a goal to aim at, it requires perseverance amongst many other things. And when Paul talks about running the race, he's not actually talking about a race, he's talking about the Christian life. He's talking about what it means to live life. And uh, the Christian life is certainly a marathon and not a sprint. And yet there's sometimes all sorts of things can come along that stumble, in our, that help make us stumble, that get in our way. And we've been singing like, you alone are my heart's desire and I long to worship you. And that's so good, isn't it? As we come together and we like align ourselves with God, yes. And yeah, it's so easy, isn't it, for us to then walk out of this building and suddenly all the other desires in our life are very present and real and we can sometimes uh, yeah just trip over things we can sometimes stumble over different things we can um, get into trouble in different areas because some our desires are strong and they pull us in different directions and certainly this was the Corinthian church's problem they had lots of things that they were stumbling over and so we've called the series Church as God Intended because we've been looking at um, some of the key like blocks that are good for us as a church to <coughs> grapple with and uh, what I'm going to do is spend a little time talking about setting out the context for this passage. And then I'm going to uh, do three main points. And I'm actually going to do those three main points. One from chapter 8, one from chapter 9, and one from chapter 10. But don't worry, we won't read them all. And uh, so let me give you a bit of background. 1 Corinthians 8 to 10 is one long answer to one question. 
And you see, the book of 1 Corinthians is a return letter from Paul to the church in Corinth. Corinth was a, a key city in Greece. It was right at the centre. And we don't have the letter that the Corinthians wrote, but we can deduce from what Paul wrote back to them what they might have said. And so the first six chapters of Paul's letter is him addressing things that has, he's heard through the, through the grapevine, uh, things that the general public would know about, like the disunity in the church, like factions forming, like sexual promiscuity and people sleeping with temple prostitutes and their stepmums and stuff like that. And we've covered all this stuff. It's been great fun. And uh, then in chapter 7, he then says, right, now to the things that you wrote to me about. And he starts to answer some of the questions. And in chapter 7, we address the issue of um, they were asking about um, things like sex and marriage and singleness and divorce and when's it right to do those things. And, and we talked about that. We called that talk healthy relationships. And then in chapter 8, he says, now about food sacrifice to idols. And in chapter 8, they ask this question, is it okay to eat <coughs> meat that has been sacrificed to idols? And... Um, that's the kind of one issue that he then answers through 8, 9 and 10. And so we're going to cover those and move into chapter 11 next week. Uh, some people will um, think, oh, we've already done chapter 8. And you're right, we have. And Johnny did an excellent preach on it. And so uh, when, when we look at chapter 8, I'm just going to give some summary uh, bullet points. But um, so we'll mainly focus on 9 and 10. And for the people in Corinth... Um, in the church there, whether to eat meat sacrificed to idols or not, it was a big deal. And the reason why is because the church in Corinth had people that had been converted to Christianity from, from Judaism. So they were Jews, they converted to Christianity. But there was also people from a pagan background. So pagans are people who worship all sorts of different gods. And they converted from that background. And um, in their past, the pagans would have gone to the temple to sacrifice meat to all sorts of different gods for good favour in business or in health or in fertility. And uh, this would have uh, been like a social thing. It would have been business thing as they would have networked. It would involve probably drink, would have involved uh, sleeping around with people. And um, what, what would have happened therefore is when they come to eat meat, it would have conjured up the smells and, and all of that would have conjured up thoughts in their minds of what their life used to be like. Um, once, uh, when they go to sacrifice meat, what would happen with that meat is that some of it would be burnt and offered to the gods, and some would be eaten by the temple priest, but the rest of it would go to the local markets, to the supermarket. And so if you went to the market and bought meat, it was probably um, meat that has been in a sacrificial ritual. And so some Christians at the time, they looked at this scenario and they couldn't bring themselves to eat it because it was reminding them of their past and it was unhelpful for them. But others who perhaps didn't come from that background and who probably this letter was from, they um, were like, what are you talking about? Like, get over it. Like, you should have better knowledge now. God, there's, those gods, they're, they're not real gods. There's only one main god. And your knowledge of that should mean that you can kind of deal with that issue um, and, and eat it anyway. And even if you don't eat it, well, don't stop me from eating it. And so there'll be communal meals together and there'll be issues between the different Christians because some would want to eat the meat and others wouldn't. And they write to Paul saying, what should we do about meat? Should we eat it in front of others or not? Especially if my conscience is fine with me doing that. 
So that was the debate going on, and that's what Paul answers over 8, 9, and 10. And I've got to be honest with you, in our culture, in Guildford in 2018, <coughs> pagan temple worship, which includes sacrificed animals, and then the discernment of whether it's okay to eat that or not, is probably not our issue. Uh, it certainly probably is in some cultures, um, but I don't think it is here today. I mean, I, I, don't, I can't really imagine anyone coming here this morning thinking, oh yes, I can't wait for Chris to tackle that passage because I've been really struggling with this issue in my life. But maybe, and this could be really relevant to you, but what is relevant to everyone here, which is why it's good to cover it, is the issue that brought the whole debate up um, in the first place. And that what is underlined throughout these chapters, and that is an issue of my rights. I have the right, don't you know? I should be able to exercise them, I should be able to do what I like. And the context of Corinth was that there was, it was a major city in the centre, it was a theological hub, it was an economic hub, it was a cultural hub, but it was also a centre of rights. Lots of people um, would travel there from different backgrounds, different religions, and um, we've talked in the past about how all these different things seeped into the church, and this idea of having my rights and be able to exercise them was something that uh, was very prevalent in the culture at the time. And so, to be honest, it's very similar to the UK and to, certainly to Guildford today. The prevailing thinking is that any individual in the UK should be able to do what they want. They should have the right to do it, whatever it might be, as long as it doesn't hurt children. And everyone in our culture feels entitled to something. Everyone knows their rights. This stems from children at school. I remember being a teacher, they would know their rights. It stems to prison um, and uh, prisoners knowing their rights and what they're able to have and what they're not. And it goes, goes all across our culture and it affects um, everything, including our Christian lives and including certainly the Corinthian church and it can affect ours. So much so that um, people in the church there in Corinth were willing to eat this sacrificed meat with others and even serve it at mealtimes. It's the same as us taking uh, people to, taking like a sober alcoholic to a pub and sitting there having a meal and expecting them to just be okay with it because now you're a Christian, you should be able to deal with it because you should know the truth, that God has set you free and therefore it shouldn't affect you. But the reality is it does and it's not the loving thing to do. So you may not be a Christian here today, and most of today's talk is predominantly talking to Christians. Um, but uh, there, there, is, there is a, I think it's good for you to look in and see, and I think everyone knows that Christians love to disagree on stuff. Because this issue of meat, it's not like, it, it, there's not like a rule book in the Bible about whether you, it's okay to eat or not. This is like a grey area. And in our life, we have grey areas all the time. So it's a really good topic to look at this morning because as we go into 2019, there'll be all sorts of things that you come across in your life and it's like, what is the right thing to do? And the Bible not, might not say anything about it. Let, let me give you a few examples. What about gambling? Um, the, these are some things that Christians have very clear views on, but the Bible doesn't actually say a lot about them. What about drinking alcohol? What about going clubbing? What about playing combat sports, smoking? What about um, you following the work protocol and everyone in the office makes sure that they change the figures some, some way in order that the company looks better or in order that the colleagues uh, get their bonus that week and so you kind of go along and is it okay to say that little white lie? What about tattoos? 
What about body piercings? Some, you know, people have ideas. It's okay to have an ear piercing, but if you start piercing your belly button or something, oh, that's dangerous territory. What about babies? How you give birth, in the Christian circles, how you give birth is a major deal. And then how you feed your baby is a big deal. And there's very clear views, strong views on these things. What about yoga? Is it okay to say to do that? And there's many, many more. All these things the Bible virtually says very little about. And um, let's take a few examples. Gambling in, in the Old and New Testament, they choose their leaders by casting lots. You could argue that it's more biblical to throw names in a hat and pick one out than it is to take a vote, for example, in church life. That's interesting, isn't it? And uh, certainly the Bible will talk about um, making sure that we are you know, not given over to things and they're not controlling our lives. But it's okay to, because um, there's two extremes. And some people will go, oh, yes, okay, do what you like. And some people go, oh, no, you can't ever do it. But what about the school's PTA raffle? Is it okay to put a pound in that and you might win something from the tombola to support the school? What do you do? What do you do in that situation? Uh, what about, um, let's pick another one, um, I don't know, uh, yeah, alcohol. Certainly the Bible talks about not getting drunk, not being a drunkard, but is it okay to drink alcohol? People will make all sorts of rules around this. Well, it's okay to drink alcohol at home. Um, when I went to Brazil, uh, there was no Christian would go to a pub. It was like, that was the worst thing to do. It just, there was all sorts of connotations perceived in people's minds, and I was there for six months. So we didn't go to uh, any pubs, and they're like, oh no, you can't go to the pub. But in their homes, they'll be swigging it back and like, well, what's that about? And there was, there was these things, they'd made up these rules in their life of how, when they could drink an alcohol and when they couldn't. Um, some people in the, in the UK will think, oh, okay, it's okay to drink alcohol in a pub during the day, but you can't go in the evening. And if it's got loud music and it starts, it starts to turn in a club, then that's off limits. And it's like, <laughs> where's all these rules coming from? And uh, what about tattoos? Some people will say that you're body is a temple of the Holy Spirit and therefore you shouldn't get a tattoo. Others would say, well, in Revelation, Jesus is on his white shining horse and he's got written down his leg that he's the king of kings and lord of lords. And so therefore, he had a tattoo. Why can't I? And both of them are taken way out of context. <laughs> and yet, Christians can debate about these things, argue about these, these things, and not necessarily argue, but cause opinions and sometimes division and look down on other people when they do things that they think that they shouldn't do. And I'm not saying that all these things are good or, or not good. I'm not casting judgment on any of these things. What I'm saying is that there are great areas in life that the Bible doesn't always have everything to say on. And, you know... you. There is no book of Leviticus in the New Testament. Uh, Leviticus is a book in the, in the Old Testament that had all the rules laid out. In the New Testament, we're called to follow the Holy Spirit and to allow him to guide us. And obviously, there's some, there are some things that are clear in the New Testament. And uh, it's easy to... We've talked about many of them over this series. But there are also things that aren't. And eating meat in front of uh, your friends or other Christians was one that wasn't clear. And they're asking about it. And some of these are not always so clear. You could even take the smoking one. If um, at the end of the meeting we have a little prayer gathering and you decide to light up a, a cigarette, I'll, I'll probably ask you to put it out. But if you come to me and say, 
and you're, you know, you're new to our church or something and, and you smoke and you say, is it okay that when I'm at work, I'm on my like, fag break, is it all right for me to pray? Yeah, absolutely. Go for it. There's, 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 do you know, see what I mean? There is, there's no black and white necessarily on these issues and it depends where you are and what stage of life you're at and what, where your background has been. So how do we discern what to do? And um, that's what we're going to look at today. How do I decide? How, how do I walk this life that God has given me? How, when I go through 2019, what do I do? And Paul responds to this question in three ways. And I'm going to pick out one key way from each chapter. Each time he also raises a question that it's good for us to ask ourselves when we're coming to an issue. We can ask ourselves a question and uh, we can ask ourselves, oh, three questions and they will help us to decide what the best way forward is. We're going to take one from each chapter. Let's start at chapter eight. And um, in November, as I mentioned, Johnny spoke about this really brilliantly and he showed us that our response to dealing with people isn't about ramming knowledge down their throats because that's what the Corinthians were doing. They were saying, oh, don't, they, you know, don't they know this knowledge? Don't they know that we, we can move on from this, that God is over all things? Uh, it's not about doing that, but love is about building people up first. And so these are the verses that were key. It said, now about food sacrificed to idols. We know that, and Paul says in quotes, we all possess knowledge because that was something that they were saying. Look, we all possess this knowledge. But he goes on and says, but knowledge puffs up, while love builds up. In verse 7, he goes on, not everyone possesses that knowledge. And some people are still so accustomed to idols that when they eat sacrificial food, they think of it as having been sacrificed to a god since their conscience is weak. It's like taking that sober alcoholic to the pub. But it can be difficult for them to do that. It can be unwise. So tackling the issue of rights, which is what we're talking about, be careful then, however, that the exercise of your rights does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Just because you have the right to do it, just because the law says that you can do it, you know, the UK law or whatever law says you can do it, doesn't mean that you necessarily should. What's the most loving thing? Well, it is, therefore, we... Uh, if me eating that causes my brother or sister to fall in sin, I'm never going to eat meat again. That's Paul's response to this situation. They were saying, my right should allow me to do this. And those idiots, they should know better and they should have a bit more knowledge. And Paul says in the chapter that though it might be true that technically and theologically it should be okay for someone to eat that meat, that because people have come from different backgrounds and they have different past experiences that can cause them to stumble, that the most loving thing to do is to forego your rights so that you can build them up even to the point where Paul is willing to give up meat forever. And that's pretty drastic. I don't know if I could do that. I'm sure I could if I needed to. The Corinthians are wanting Paul to back them up theologically so that they can justify their poor attitude towards other believers. And it's easy for us to do the same. In fact, it's really easy if you want someone to back you up theologically in order that you can um, do something that is is sinful or something that's not helpful, hey, you could find that knowledge because after all, we all possess knowledge. There will be all sorts of people out there on the internet that can give you reasons why it's okay to do all sorts of different things. And yet, what we shouldn't be asking ourselves is how much can I get away with? Instead, we should be asking ourselves, how, can, how much can I bless the other person? How can I build them up? How can I help them with their journey? And that was Paul's whole point in chapter eight. 
how best can you help them not to stumble and them to be built up? And that's kind of the words that have been coming through from us today. How can we best, if we're full of the Holy Spirit, go and help others that maybe are having, uh, are maybe just struggling? How can we, you know, pour out jugs of water into them? It's been coming through. And uh, one last thing to mention is that uh, Johnny gave a really great analogy of the salt depot. And he was talking about how we're all kind of like trucks. We're the salt trucks. And uh, coming together on a Sunday or midweek at Vision Focus evenings or at worship nights is us being, like our trucks being topped up. And then as we go out into the week, we, we spray salt and into people's lives. We encourage them. We build them up. We, we restore them, refresh them. And we, we build people up for whoever we meet. And, uh, and that's really, it's good for us to do. And what's interesting about that is that if each week we come back with a, with a fully loaded truck, then what's going to happen? You're just going to puff up even more. You're just going to get bigger. And so it's a real good encouragement that when we're next in a situation and we don't know exactly what the right thing to do, one thing we can ask ourselves is, will this help or hinder the other person? Regardless of my rights, will this help or hinder their walk with God? Whether they know him yet or not, will it help them? So that's point one. Love builds up. Ask yourself, does it help other people's walk with God? In chapter 9, Paul then chooses to give a personal example of where he has given up the right of something for the benefit of others. And he encourages us to do the same in order to run a good race. And so he uses an example of giving up his right to pay in order for him to continue to follow the calling of God on his life to preach the gospel and to plant churches. And to just give a bit of background to this, it was normal for the people that planted churches, they were called apostles, it was normal for them to be financially supported by the churches that they started. But from Paul's response in chapter 9, we can see that he hasn't received any money from the Corinthian church. And uh, he's raised the issue with them, and that's what he's going to do in chapter 9. And he was willing to challenge them on it, but in this instance, he knew that it was better for him to forego his right to pay because if he didn't, somehow it would hinder the gospel being at work in that place. And so for Paul, running his race well meant foregoing his rights for the sake of the gospel. So he, he uses words like this. This is my defence, he says, to those who sit in judgment on me. Don't we have the right to food and drink? Don't we have the right to take a believing wife along with us as, we, as do the other apostles and the Lord's brothers? Anyone know who the Lord's brothers are? Jesus' brothers? James, yeah. Simon. Jude. And Joseph. Jesus' brothers. And also Cephas, which means Peter. Uh, or he says, or is it only I and Barnabas who lack the right to, to not work for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard and does not eat its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink milk? He's right, isn't he? Like a soldier gets paid. He doesn't have to buy his own uniform. He gets paid to, to work for the army. He goes on. Do I say this merely on human authority? Doesn't the law say the same thing? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it is treading out the grain. It is, about, is, it, is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? Yes, this was written for us because whoever ploughs and threshes should be able to do so in the hope of sharing in the harvest. If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much if we reap a material harvest from you? If others have this right of support from you, shouldn't we have it all the more? 
Paul is clear with them and as someone who has looked after them, as someone who's cared for them, as someone who started the meeting together, as someone who's given apostolic input and equipped them and trained them, he is clear that he has rights to much from the church uh, in terms of financial support from them. But, he says, I did not use this right. On the contrary, we put up with anything rather than hindering the gospel of Christ. I want to give you a few personal application points. I want to remind you that Paul is answering the question, should I give up my right to something, or in this case, should I give up my right to eating meat? And by a personal example, he shows that the most important thing in running our race well is not financial gain, even if we are owed it or have the right to it, but it's the gospel. And in this instance, he chooses to forego the right because in verse 13 he says, I would rather forego it than hinder the gospel of Christ. Like I would rather, you know, I'd rather not have it so that the gospel of Christ isn't hindered. And now we don't exactly know why him being paid by the Corinthian church would have hindered the gospel in that area. It might be because people were peddling the gospel um, and making financial gain. And if he had done the same, people might have, like his message might have been diluted. But what we do know is that the gospel is a priority. It's important for Paul. And he was in a good relationship with God. He was in a good place with God in order to be able to make that kind of decision. And so I wonder, what about you? Are there things in your life, things that you feel that you have the right to, that perhaps you need to forego for the sake of the gospel? Is what you are doing at work or in that relationship or at that event or at home or with your neighbours, is it advancing the gospel or is it hindering it? You know, when you can, I'm sure you can imagine situations that, that you're in um, where it's possible to really annoy people around you, annoy your neighbours by parking in front of their driveway or something, or all sorts of different things, and ask yourself, I have the right to park there because it's not a, I don't know, um, permit badge holder bay. But is it advancing the gospel or is it hindering it? So it's a silly example, isn't it? But they're the kind of decisions we face every day. We have the right to do it, but should we? Is it the best thing to do? It's a good question to ask ourselves. Would people at your workplace be surprised if they found out you were a Christian? Do they know you're a Christian? And if they would be, then perhaps the way you're behaving at work is, needs to change, needs to alter. Often... All of this will stem from a, a, your own relationship with God and your own priorities. Are, um, and so another good question to ask yourself is, will this thing that I'm about to do, will it help or hinder my relationship with God? And so uh, it's, you know, in the UK, it is lawful for you to have sex with anyone over the age of 18, consensual sex with anyone over the age of 18, whether you're married or not, whether they're married or not, or whether they're male or female or not. That is, that's the law. It's, it's your right to be able to do that. And then the question is, you can ask yourselves, will it um, build, build, help that person know God better? You can ask yourself, will it advance the gospel? And will it help or hinder my walk with God? These are questions you can answer. Because there's, no, there's not... There are some clear things in the Bible. And I think that one is maybe one of them. It is fairly clear. But it's still good to ask those questions yourself. And then to have the courage to then take, and take that right step. 
So that was a personal application, things that you can ask yourself from uh, Paul's example. Here's a corporate one, because it's possible to think that Paul's view of the apostolic is one that apostolic shouldn't be supported financially from a church. And I think that's far from what he's saying here. In fact, he spends the whole first chunk of chapter 9 talking about how he should have received all these things. He has the right to receive all these things, but he's choosing to forego them. And in, we know that he, although he didn't receive financial gain from the Corinthian church, he did receive it from other churches. So the Philippian church, for example, they gave him money. And in fact, the whole letter of the Philippians is a thank you letter to Paul, uh, is a thank you letter from Paul for the gift that they gave him. And so it's worth me just mentioning about commission, because commission is uh, the name of the family of churches that we belong to. Uh, it's who we receive apostolic input from. And we receive from commission all the same things that the Corinthian church received from Paul. We were planted from a church up the road in Woking, called, now called Welcome Church. And uh, they released uh, a couple called Jill and Boggles, who are the founding leaders of this church, who came uh, with some other people that are in this room now to, to get this church started. Over the years, we've had input and training from those who oversee our church. Every year, we gather together and receive excellent teaching as a whole church. Every month, our staff team get input, oversight and encouragement. Once a year, there is a conference for 20s and 30-year-olds called CST. Um, we have training days for trustees, and there was an excellent training day for children's workers just before Christmas. There's a conference that helps people to look at cross-cultural mission and what it will be like to go abroad. Every year, people go to uh, India from across commission churches to an event called UDA and support it there, and anyone here can do that this coming year too. Um, there are leadership training courses called Advance and Foundations, which Kezia, who's leading us this morning, is doing, and Phil and I'm doing. And they're excellent things that help us as a church to grow. There's an internship program which Georgia is doing, and, and where there's theological training based in Bristol that's provided by Commission. The leaders in Commission pray for us regularly, they care for us. It was Guy Miller, the leader of uh, the organisation, who started a first approaching Grace Church to ask them if they would release me to come here. And it's Mark uh, who brought me into eldership here a few months ago. It's, it's Mark who, uh, who oversees our church, who's meeting up with Jill and Boggles regularly. And there's many people in our church that are doing that too, which is great. It's through commission that we are part of starting new churches across the UK and India and Nepal and Spain and Serbia and America. And over the years, people from across our family of churches have had significant key prophetic words. I was just reading some of them this week um, and I haven't got time to go into them now, but they've all helped to shape who we are as a church. And all of this is why it's so important to be part of something bigger than ourselves. And while we receive training, input, love, care, support from something bigger so that we're not just focused on our little thing, what we're doing here, but we have our eyes open to see what God is doing all across the globe. And that is why we should give to commission. And that's why we do. And I want to encourage you to come on Wednesday evening because I want to tell you more about uh, what we're doing with commission, but also how we're giving to uh, different organisations in the local community too. And I think it's worth asking the same questions of this. Does it advance the kingdom of God? Yes, absolutely. Does it help or hinder our relationship with God? Well, of course it helps, doesn't it, as we uh, receive all this input. Does it help other people to grow in their relationship with God? Absolutely. And uh, my last point I'm going to go on to is, does it glorify God? 
So we've looked at building others up, we've looked at running well, asking ourselves these, so I'm going to skip that bit, asking ourselves these questions. And lastly, we're going to look at does it glorify God? Because in chapter 10, Paul gives an example from the Old Testament, which again, I'm not going to read, but it's, an, it's of people who saw amazing things. They saw the seas parted. They saw God moving in mighty ways, providing manna from heaven. And, uh, but these people, they didn't enter the promised land because of their heart attitude. They would grumble to Moses saying that it was better for us to be slaves in Egypt. So what right have you got to take me away from it? But Moses did these things because he wanted to save many people's lives. And at the end of chapter 10, after encouraging the people in Corinth that God won't allow you to be tempted more than what you can bear, Paul summarises the whole approach to this question by saying, whether you eat, I'll wait for it to come up, whether you eat or drink, I'll read it, um, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I'm not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. On this issue, should I give up my right to eat meat, to go clubbing, to smoke, to get tattoos, to do all sorts of different things, to park in front of my neighbour's driveway, to all these different things that can come up in life, should I give up my right? Well, Paul encouraged us to ask ourselves this question, does it bring glory to God? And you might ask, or what of the options, what will bring the most glory to God? What should I do? And there are many things in this life that you're entitled to, that you have rights to in our culture. And running the race well isn't just about attaining all the rights that you can in this life, regardless of anyone else. But it's about your relationship with God and others. And you know what? When Jesus was asked, what's the greatest commandment? He said to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. And the next is like it, to love your neighbour as yourself. And so that summarises all of these points. Paul gave us a great example of giving up his rights. But do you know what? Jesus gives us an even better example of how he gave up his rights for the saving of many. Let me give you a few. Jesus gave up the right of sitting at his father's right hand and willingly came to earth as a baby. Jesus set aside his rights of divine, of like using divine power um, for a time as he came as a boy and learnt and grew and was tempted in the desert. Jesus gave up his right to riches, wealth and prosperity, all the things that we hold dear. Jesus gave up his right to dignity as he hung naked on a cross. Jesus gave up his rights to be with his friends and family and those people close to him. Jesus gave up his rights to a fair trial and he was illegally arrested and illegally imprisoned and illegally killed. Ultimately, Jesus gave up his right to life as he was crucified on the cross. Jesus was not seeking his own good, but the good of many, that many would be saved. And on the third day, he rose again, defeating death, sin and Satan, because it could not hold him or contain him. And now he is at work through his Holy Spirit, calling and guiding many people from all around the world. And he doesn't say that I died so that you may have the right to a long life, health, wealth and prosperity. You know, Jesus didn't die so that you would just raise a family, have a nice car, have a good job, put away some money for a pension and then give some inheritance to your children when you die. No, there's a difference between, there's, if the only difference, sorry, between you and your neighbour is that you come to church on a Sunday, well, we need to... F open our eyes and say, what is God calling me to? Jesus called you to follow him. He called you to
to be a fisher of men, to lay down your life, to lay down your, um, all your rights, to surrender it all and follow him. So that as you go to work, school, university, as you retire, as you go to that nursing home, whatever it is, you go there not as a colleague, mum, student or patient or client, but as an ambassador of the king of kings, as a fisher of men, going there to do the king's work. You go there as a salt dispensing truck, dispensing salt on a mission for Jesus. <laughs> And that will mean all sorts of things to different people. And that's what it means to surrender all to Jesus. It's why we sing that song, I surrender all. The Bible talks about carrying your cross daily. And someone put it like this, a crucified person has no plans of their own. How do you run the race well? Where you consider the things that are out there for you to do. And notice, I'm not saying what you should and shouldn't do, but I'm saying there's all sorts of things that will come across your path and ask yourself these questions. Is it going to bless other people's journey with God? Will it advance the kingdom and bless my own journey with God? And will it bring glory to God? Let's get the band up. And uh, just as they come up, I've been talking a lot this morning about giving up your rights. But do you know that in the Bible there is a right that we're entitled to? Anyone know what it is? I'll tell you, it's from uh, John, um, and John talking about Jesus coming to this world, being a light in the darkness. He says this, he was in the world, about Jesus, he was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, 